There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The assassination of a Hamas leader in Beirut and an attack near the gravesite of an Iranian general. It's led to calls and cries for revenge, starting with Hezbollah and its leader. He said this is a horrible crime of what happened and that will, no one should be silent of this. But Hans Jacob Schindler, senior director at the Counter-Extremism Project, noted something interesting. But he made no concrete threats against Israel. Creating a very complicated situation. About the killing of Aruri in Beirut, Israel has been quiet about the killing, but the operation, according to many, has the hallmarks of an Israeli operation. You know, look, when you look at this high-value target from the Israelis' perspective, uh, it certainly would resonate throughout the Hamas leadership as well as the Pidge leadership and the Hezbollah leadership. In other words, this assassination would make them very insecure. Fred Burton, former State Department counterterrorism agent, and Hans Jacob Schindler, senior director at the Counter-Extremism Project, they both join us on this program to talk about these explosive events. Coming up on this episode from WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. We have two guests on this show. First up is Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director at the Counter-Extremism Project. Two days, two very explosive, literally, events have taken place in in Lebanon and in um, Iran. And both of them have implications for a wider conflict in the region. We don't know a lot about either one of those situations, at least the backgrounds in terms of what took place, but that's why we come to you. So let's start first with Salah Aruri, and then I'll ask you about the situation that took place in Kerman in Iran. But first, the killing of Salah Aruri. What do you know? So here is what is known, and I think also fact so far. So uh, a couple of days ago, um, a- after a meeting between Hamas, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and Hezbollah, but after the Hezbollah officials have left, a drone strike happened um, at an office building where these meetings took, took place and killed Aruri and a couple of other Hamas guys of lesser rank. Aruri is a very significant player in the regional, even global Hamas network. He, again, uh, is a close friend of Sinwa. Both joined Hamas very early on in 1988. Um, Aruri was already part of the first Intifada radicalized when he was studying at Hebron University in 1985 already, and then was one of the co-founders of the Al-Qassam Brigade, so the terror arm of the wider Hamas organization. 
Um, he then um, was spending quite a number of years, over a decade in Israeli prisons, and was released in 2010, um, apparently, allegedly, as part of the deal to release Gilad Shalit in 2011, although, for whatever reason, Hamas subsequently denied that he was part of that deal. You can take it as what it means. But part of his uh, release agreement was that he had to leave Israel. So he went first to the Hamas headquarter in Syria until 2012, when Hamas and the Syrian government had a fallout because of the civil war there. And the headquarters was closed. He went then from Syria to Turkey, got thrown out of Turkey in 2015, went to Qatar, got thrown out of Qatar. And, you know, you know that uh, Qatar is quite generous to Hamas people. So getting him out of Qatar, he must have done something really heinous. And then spent until his death most of his time in Beirut. Now, here he had two main functions. Number one, he was the quasi-representative of Hamas with Hezbollah. As we had said prior uh, in our interviews, um, Hamas was really trained by Hezbollah. In particular, when you look what happened on the 7th of October, that's not a typical Hamas tactic. That's a typical Iranian proxy, i.e. Hamas tactic. And he was one of the main go-in-betweens between Iran and Hamas. And there are videos of him attending meetings with the Supreme Leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei. So not everyone gets to meet the Supreme Leader. You must be a really significant person to do that. So, so he was then uh, also the leader of Hamas in the West Bank until his death and the deputy of the political bureau of Hamas, so the top political leadership. Okay, let's go back. Um, that's quite a bit of information. So let's go back to the sort of the beginning to talk about, you said the information you have, most of it is pretty much fact. Um, you said he was killed in a drone strike. Israel has not said they did it. Why does everyone think they did do it? Well, I mean, first of all, Israel never, unless they're really forced or there's absolute evidence that they were, um, is uh, ever confirming killings of terrorists abroad. Only in the Palestinian territories or in Israel do they take responsibility. Uh, secondly, everything points towards Israel, including, of course, statements by Israeli politicians. So the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee, in the Israeli parliament, tweeted and congratulated the IDF, the Mossad and the Shin Beit, or the external and internal intelligence service of Israel. But also Mark Regev, the senior advisor to uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, went on uh, an American TV channel and said, uh, you know, whoever did it, I don't know who did it, um, this was not intended to target Hezbollah or the Lebanese state. So he doesn't know who did it, but he knows exactly who it was targeting. So. Um, obviously, they're not going to officially say they've done it, but it's pretty absolutely clear that it is Israel. Now, um, and you're exactly right. I saw that statement by Regev and I said, that's just a sideways confirmation of what it is that took place, although the Israelis will never, as you said, admit that they did that. Um, looking at uh, Aruri being thrown out of all of these places and... Um, I just want to drill down a little bit on why. What kind of individual was he, um, to, to your knowledge? Oh, because he was a top Hamas leader, and he was a top Hamas leader primarily involved in organizing violence. So this was not a Hamas leader who take care of um, yeah, political affairs or organizing some um, quote-unquote charitable uh, operations in Gaza. He was His job was to organize violence. His job was 
to liaise with Hezbollah, to get Hamas fighters trained, to liaise with Iran, to get weapons from Iran. He was involved in financing of the Hamas, but on the violence side of Hamas. So he was a as much a terrorist as you can you know, be a terrorist. And I think this was even for Qatar, who has very much different standards um, than, than we have of who is a terrorist and who is not too much. Now, that this has taken place. We know that Hezbollah has promised retaliation, and we don't know when or where that will come from. Um, but also on top of that, today at the uh, gravesite or near the gravesite of Qasem Soleimani on the fourth anniversary of his killing in a U.S. drone strike in 2020, there were there was what is known in the terrorism or counterterrorism community as a double tap. There was an explosion um, not too far from his grave, and then 15, 20 minutes later, there was another one. Tell me what your understanding is of what took place. Yeah. So just on the Hezbollah side, um, I would put a little caveat on, um, you know, saying that there's going to be retaliation. So if you look at what Masnala has said today in his speech, it was a speech that was pre-scheduled, and there's also the connection to Kerman pre-scheduled for the fourth year anniversary of the death of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian Al-Quds Force general who was killed at Baghdad airport uh, four years ago. Uh, in that speech, he, number one, repeated again that this attack of uh, October 7th was a wonderful thing, but it was not a Palestinian idea. That definitely doesn't mean that uh, Hezbollah is eager, even at this point, to get involved in this. Secondly, he said this is a horrible crime of what happened, and there will no one should be silent about this, but he made no concrete threats against Israel. Again, indicating that neither Hezbollah nor Iran are willing to do more or significantly more or sustainably more than they're doing right now in order to help Hamas. So pinpoint attacks, slightly ramping up the pressure at the northern front of Israel, and 90,000 Israelis have been evacuated from northern Israel because of these polar rockets. That's as far as they are willing to go at this point. The real pressure that Iran does on the international community actually happens further south at this point. It's not the rockets on northern Israel, which is horrible and a real problem for Israel. But what the Houthis are doing in the Red Sea on Iran's behest, and Iran said a weekend ago that they are, you know, if things go wrong, going to close the Mediterranean which means they are going to uh, ask the Houthis to do much more to attack international shipping. And that really harms the global economy. There are several shipping lines, including Mayas, who are avoiding the Suez Canal, which means there is a drop, a significant drop in revenues for Egypt. There is a significant increase in shipping insurance, and there is a significant delays in the transport of goods and materials between Europe and Asia, Asia and America, because they're no longer going through the Suez Canal. So. This is an actual, this is where the real damage for the global economy is happening right now. So now to Kerman. Um, we really don't know yet who is behind this attack. But uh, I like to point out, Iran is not a liberal democracy and everyone is free to do whatever they want and weapons are freely available. This is a extremely tightly controlled police state. This is a dictatorship. And so someone at a very significant public event for the regime. So this was not an opposition demonstration. This was 100% a regime show of force. It's the fourth anniversary of the death of uh, Soleimani. It was a big event at the gravesite and at the 
um, at the funeral site of, of uh, Soleimani plant with thousands and thousands of regime supporters attending. And here, two bomb explosions, which means a really sophisticated planning, obtaining of uh, explosive materials, the placement of the bombs, and killing of over 100 people and injuring scores more. That is an event that Iran has not experienced in a very, very, very long time. I do not remember a terror attack. And uh, as you know, I served in Iran between 2005 and 11 in my time or since at that scale. There were smaller scale terror attacks at my time. There are smaller scale terror attacks always at the border between Iran and Afghanistan, sometimes at the northern part of Iran towards Iraq. But this is really unprecedented. And at the moment, the bets are still off who is behind this. So when you look at what we know and what you just said about this being an unprecedented attack and uh, indicating that Iran has enemies internally uh, and uh, it needs to watch its back internally, who's likely behind this? It's hard to say. I mean, clearly there has been a quite a significant increase of the threat by Salafi terrorism emanating out of Afghanistan. As a reminder, Iran is a Shiite country. Um, inside uh, Afghanistan, we do have groups, in particular the Islamic State Khorasan province, so the ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan, that is just as happy killing Shiites than it is as killing anyone else. Uh, and they have been attacking Iranian targets inside Afghanistan for a while. There's been already an attack uh, with knives in Mashhad um, a couple of uh, years ago, a year and a half ago, uh, coming from Afghanistan. So if I, without knowing anything about the background at this point, this would be my first assumption. But of course, it's really hard to tell if you don't know more details. The problem with the Iranian regime is Anything coming out of its propaganda machine that dresses up as a media machine is really not trustworthy. So they will come up with some culprits. I'm sure in the next 48 hours, we'll see some arrests. Some people will make confessions. And that can be true or it cannot be true. It's just impossible to tell because in the Islamic Republic, it's not about who's done it. It's just about how the regime looks like. So... I guess the usual suspects are going to be arrested and are going to confess to this crime. So they haven't tried to blame Israel for this already, the Iranian state television or anything? Not to my knowledge, but just wait. Yeah. So retaliation, again, you know, that's the big thing with organizations and groups like this. Um, They will most likely try to go after whoever did this in some way. But I, I, I suspect, though, they're going to try to leverage this as well to try to gain support uh, from others. I'm speaking about Iran here. Um, how do you believe, how do you think they might try to use this to their advantage, the government? Well, this is a very tense situation. Um, the Iranian regime, unfortunately, is usually strategically quite swat, smart in what it does. So rather than lashing out in the next 48 hours, um, I would say the Iranians are more sophisticated than that. Um, after the killing of Soleimani, it took a year and a half before the real serious Iranian action uh, came. So if it was anyone but uh, Islamist terrorists out of Afghanistan, if there was anyone else behind it, or if the regime decides to spin it that way, 
Uh, it will take some time, but there will be a response. But immediately responding is not the style of the Iranian regime. What is it that the U.S., the West, uh, and others that might be allied with Israel and against Iran and against Hezbollah and against Hamas, what is it that these countries and governments and um, political organizations need to worry about? Well, first of all, we still have this continuing chance, threat, risk of regional escalation. At the moment, you know, after the speech of Nasrallah, I would say the, the chances that Hezbollah is going to go into a full-out war with Israel and then having the same experience that it did in 2006, where it may win on the propaganda front, but it will lose most of its infrastructure that it has, is not extremely likely. Hezbollah has to make sure that it keeps the power balance in Lebanon. Hezbollah is acting on Iran's behest, who's clearly not interested to escalate this in a point where there is a chance of uh, direct attacks against the Iranian homeland. And um, it has this other ability with the Houthis in Yemen, something that there is great hesitation to touch, right? So we have this international maritime force. They have shot down rockets that are very cheap with extremely expensive rockets. They have sunk some Houthi boats, but they have not, in interestingly, bombarded any Houthi launch sites inside Yemen. Clearly, at this point, the international community does not want to get involved in the Yemen conflict, potentially, because they've seen what happens if you do uh, on the experience of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But this is where the actual choke point is at the moment. And this economic damage that is done now, and for Europe, you have to take into consideration, we still have a massive war going on in, in Ukraine, which ramps up energy prices. The last thing that European economies need now is transport uh, and supply chain difficulties from other areas of the, of the globe. So this is a real flashpoint right now. And this needs to be sorted out. And I think this is where Iran sees the Achilles heel of our system at the moment and where they can very effectively, even more removed than it would be if Hezbollah attacks, um, exert enormous pressure. That's a broad overview of what's taken place in the last couple of days. Now, for the drill down into terrorism and the tactics, tradecraft, etc., and what to expect in terms of retaliation and where and how. We go to Fred Burton. Fred is the former deputy director at the Diplomatic Security Services Counterterrorism Bureau. They're part of the State Department, and he's currently executive director of protective intelligence at ONTIC. And I asked him to break down what he saw in the killing of Salah Aruri in Beirut. Well, you look at it from a counterterrorism perspective, uh, it certainly was uh, a very tactical operation. It, in all probability, required eyes on the target uh, from a counterterrorism operational perspective. Uh, I also find it very interesting that the target was um, on the Rewards for Justice program list, which was uh, you know, a program that Literally, we started on my watch back in the day, JJ. So uh, this was a gentleman that had a long history of enemies and, you know, certainly not only of interest to the United States government, but uh, obviously to uh, the IDF as well. 
That's exactly right. And I wanted to hearken back to your days at the State Department's um, Diplomatic Security Service. Um, tell us about what you know about uh, Al-Aruri. Well, it looks like uh, he has a very interesting position now, I would say, from a current perspective, in that uh, he's hunkered down in Beirut, uh, obviously under the Hezbollah protective umbrella, uh, which certainly provides him, it would have psychologically with the degree of what he would perceive security in the area. And, and it would be that, JJ, uh, from that, from my understanding of just operational capability in Beirut, it was always a very difficult environment for us to operate in. Uh, there is always historical concern for, uh, you know, the bombings that happened in 83 and 84, you know, the embassies and the Marine barracks and and so forth. But when you look at that just from uh, operating a denied area and the Israelis having that kind of tactical capability, which they've always shown to be able to do that, uh, I hearken back to uh, the hit on Ali Hassan Salome of Black September in Beirut in the 70s. Uh, you know, that, again, was a very difficult operating environment. And, you know, look, when you look at um, this high value target from the Israelis perspective, uh, it certainly would resonate throughout the uh, Hamas leadership, as well as the Pidge leadership and the Hezbollah leadership, which I find interesting, simply because uh, you really are rattling the Hezbollah cage now. Uh, Sheikh uh, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, I would think, would have to retaliate in some capacity. And the thing that is worrisome to me in that, obviously the, the logical target sets would be missiles raining on Tel Aviv, for example. But there's a side of me that says uh, with the anniversary tomorrow of the assassination of IRGC General uh, Qasem Soleimani, that timing is kind of very curious for some some degree of uh, retaliation. And uh, I've been around this business long enough, JJ, to know that that retaliation has always surprised us. And uh, that's a little bit worrisome to me. Uh, obviously, Israel's the, the logical target, but it would not necessarily have to be inside of Israel. It could be an Israeli target somewhere else. So... This individual goes back to the, the early 1990s, and I believe you were still a part of the uh, State Department at that point, the uh, Diplomatic Security Service. So give me your view on his impact um, during your watch, and he was a young person then. Give me your view of his impact on the terrorism world at that time. Well, it's interesting to me, if you hearken back in those days, remember, we have the Middle East peace conferences going on, uh, you know, running all around, either uh, having events inside uh, the United States, most notably in the D.C. area, as well as diplomatic junkets around trying to have uh, peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And we have Arafat visiting the United States uh, during this time period, who we protected uh, along with a range and host of different Israeli uh, leaders from Rabin to Perez to General Sharon, and, and the list goes on. And then you look at uh, the organization in that time period, in order to get on the rewards for justice list, there's a process, and it's an interagency process, meaning uh, JJ and Fred just can't unilaterally put an individual like him on that list. And so you're going to be coordinating with uh, state uh, CIA, 
the FBI, uh, and DOD, and placing individuals that you believe uh, have uh, U.S. blood on their hands uh, that um, are in a leadership kind of role uh, or are trigger pullers. And, um, you know, the process is uh, very well vetted. Uh, there's a lot of oversight on who goes on that list and so forth. And, you know, with this individual, you had a $5 million bounty on his head, uh, which certainly wasn't at the bin Laden range, but it was enough to uh, hopefully draw somebody out that might say, this is where I know the individual is and so forth. But, you know, look, as you step back and think about this, JJ, um, you know, the interesting aspect is, uh, you know, the Israelis, the Mossad, uh, you know, they have been laser fixated on Iran and the nuclear development program, and all of a sudden the war starts, and there's a surprise element for what took place, which we still don't have good answers for. But there's going to be some historical targeting profiles of Hamas leaders, Palestine, Palestinian Islamic Jihad leaders, Pidge leaders, Hezbollah leaders, that you're going to pull off a shelf, and you're just going to update your targeting profile. So, um, you know, the ability for the Israelis to operate uh, inside of uh, Hezbollah's stronghold from a counterintelligence perspective is going to cause a lot of ripples throughout the Hezbollah security apparatus. And they're going to be looking for informants. They're going to be looking for individuals that perhaps uh, assisted the IDF in this operation. I know the IDF hasn't claimed credit for it. Having said that, they're the most logical persons to pull the trigger in this case. Yeah. One other really quick thing on this, Fred, um, the impact on the United States and um, what people have been talking about for a while inside the FBI and beyond about the chatter here in the U.S. Uh, essentially being at unprecedented levels since this conflict, this phase of the conflict between Israel and Hamas exploded literally um, on the 7th of October. How do you think the killing of Aruri is going to impact things here in the U.S.? I think uh, Aruri's killing is certainly going to resonate um, and uh, inspire uh, the possibility for some degree of uh, a lone actor threat, meaning uh, I do think that uh, the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force since 9-11, which has been a long time now, have done a wonderful job at, at kind of breaking the back of organized terror here in the continental United States, JJ. Having said that, this kind of event uh, could spark some uh, lone actor uh, as a call for carrying out some sort of attack. Uh, I think that's your more probable kind of scenario. I don't see any organized terror here in the United States uh, coming as a result of this. Uh, I would be much more worried if I was still back in Washington setting at my my seat as the deputy chief in the counterterrorism division, I would be more worried about where has Hezbollah uh, surprised us in the past and where are those locations? And, you know, off the top of my head, they, they, they hit us in Latin America. They had a very sophisticated car bomb we uncovered in Bangkok back in the day. Uh, and, you know, that's to me is the more worrisome part. You have a tactical threat here locally from lone actors inspired then the strategic threat would be someplace that we least expect it to happen. Anything you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Well, I think the next 72 hours uh, will be telling uh, how quickly uh, can um, 
um, Hezbollah and or Hamas mount some sort of retaliation. Uh, in the near term, I look for uh, some degree of an elevated missile threat on Tel Aviv. Uh, but then in the, in the next uh, 72 hours, especially with the anniversary of General uh, Soleimani's uh, assassination, uh, if there's anything in the works, now would be the time to pull the trigger. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode. On Christmas Eve, I got a surprise phone call from Paul Whelan calling from prison. Just days away from being incarcerated wrongfully in Russia for five years, Paul Whelan has a special message for President Biden. Mr. President, you promised to bring me home. I'm still here. And he says with each passing year, it's going to get harder. In hostage situations, the longer they are allowed to go on, the more complicated and harder it is for them to be resolved. And he said it's taking a huge toll on him. I'm quite depressed, as a matter of fact. I mean, it's Christmas time. I'm away from family. Um, you know, I've been here five years. I'm surrounded by criminals. Um, you know, it's not a healthy environment. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.